0: Seeking the Lord's blessing and help, let us turn back to the portion of scripture that we read together, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, and we'll read again from verse 5. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, been born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we started looking and reflecting on this uh, portion in the morning and we'll just continue Uh, this evening. We spent a lot of time on the first part of our text and tonight we'll focus on the second part of the text. The Apostle Paul knew the church at Philippi well because it was the first church that he established in Europe. And in this part of the letter that he wrote to them, he exhorts them to be united together as humble servants. Paul's purpose in this letter, and particularly this chapter 2, is to create such a behavior among the believers that he deems appropriate for those whose citizenship is in heaven. Paul is reminding the believers at Philippi that they are citizens of a far greater and infinitely more glorious kingdom than Rome that they are the citizens of heaven, where Christ their Lord and Saviour reigns at God's right hand. Therefore, he insists on this oneness and togetherness among believers. Because of the social culture of the day, the congregation at Philippi was in danger of breaking down because of a competitive spirit creeping in among the members through self ambition and uh, conceit. And so, in verse 1 to 4, Paul urged them to practice humble self sacrifice and self denying service. And then, in verse 5, he asks them to have the same mind which is theirs in Christ Jesus. Have the same mind among yourselves which is yours. In Christ Jesus. In other words, to have the mind of Christ. And in verse 6, he illustrates what he means by pointing to Christ as the model or the example for behavior, the motive for behavior. The humble mindset that was evident in Jesus must be seen in all those who follow Jesus. And so Paul urged the church at Philippi, to follow the example of Christ, who humbled himself. He has already urged them to act in the way that is proper for those who are in Christ, those who are united uh, to Christ, those who love Christ and who are followers of Christ. They are to think about each other as those who have a shared identity in Christ. They were to have among themselves the uh, frame of mind and disposition or mindset that he has just described here in verses 1 to 4. As those who have the mindset of Christ, they were to develop this attitude by following the example of Christ which he sets out in verse 6 onwards. Paul begins by taking us to consider Christ in his pre-incarnate estate. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What Paul is telling us, or pointing to us, is that the pre-human Christ shared fully in the very nature and essence of God. To borrow from the creed, he is the very God of very God. We use the Shorter Catechism to keep ourselves focused, which teaches us that there is only one true living God, but three persons within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is God, equal with God. But he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, or he made himself of no reputation. And he did so by taking the form of a servant or a slave and being born in the likeness of men. Now, what does that mean? Well, we noted this morning, Christ, being equal with God, had glories or or, or prerogatives or rights or, or the privileges That belongs to deity. He had the rights of being immune from suffering and pain and poverty and so on. But he did not cling to them in a grasping way. He did not regard them as something to be taken advantage of. Instead, he took upon him the form of a servant or the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. The pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-existent Son, regarded equality with God not as as something to excuse him from the task of suffering and dying to bring about our redemption, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for the mission that he uh, purposed to fulfill in the world Thomas Aquinas wrote, he emptied himself, not by laying down the divine nature, but by taking human nature. Or Augustine, who wrote, thus he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, not losing the form of God. The form of a servant was added. The form of God did not pass away. So we have the God-man, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that Jesus took the form of a servant, that uh, it wasn't merely uh, the external appearance of a servant or of a slave. Christ uh, didn't merely take on the outward appearance of a slave, that he should look like a slave, though possibly he could have taking that external appearance. But this goes much deeper uh, than uh, that. He's not saying that Christ distinguished himself, or disguised himself, rather, uh, as uh, a slave. But rather, he meant that Christ took the nature or characteristic attributes of a slave. He was distinguished as a slave, a true slave, a true servant of the father. Slavery in, in the Roman world meant the lack of rights. A slave in the Roman world was a piece of property to be bought and and, and sold. Slavery denied a person the right to anything, even his own life. Unlike other people a slave had no inherent rights to ascribe to Jesus therefore, the status uh, of a slave, was to assign to him a position of greatest humiliation and scorn in the social world in which these people moved. It meant more in the world world of this day than it does for us uh, tonight. To be a slave in the ancient world really was to have nothing. To have nothing. And Christ was like a slave. He voluntarily became a slave, laying aside all his prerogatives as the Son of God, laying aside all his glories, all his privileges as the Son of God. He veiled all his rights by clothing himself in human nature. As stated for us in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, when a rich man becomes poor, his manner of existence is is changed, but not his nature as a person. Christ never ceased to be the divine Son of God. Yet he veiled up the riches and the prerogatives of heaven for the for the lowliness and poverty of our life in Palestine, taking the form of a servant or a slave, was not God minus, but it was God plus. Taking the form of a servant was not God minus, but God plus. He became the God man. Christ taking the form of a slave meant that he became dependent on his father and became dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. As we go and as we reflect through the gospel, even up to the point of the cross, we must remember that he was the Father's servant. From the very beginning of his life in this world, to, until he said it is finished and commended his spirit into the hands of the Father, he was a servant. He was a servant. Christ taking the form of a slave meant that he, he, as we already noted, became poor. He said, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He puts himself voluntarily into the circumstances wherein people mocked him. They spat on him. They made fun of him. He was treated with he was treated with contempt. His glory was veiled and he was despised and he was rejected of men. They saw no beauty in him that they should decide him. He was a root out of a dry ground without form or comeliness. Being born in the likeness of men. He was born or made in the likeness of men, which immediately suggests a beginning or becoming of men. It marks the assumption of something new. Jesus became something he had not previously been. The Word became flesh. As we have already noted, he added a human nature to his divine person. So that, in accordance with our catechism, he had two distinct natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Now we must remember, and it is important for us to remember, that these natures were not mixed. They were distinct natures. A divine nature and a human nature In one persons, not two persons, in one persons. Two distinct natures, that is divine and human, but he remained one person forever. Again, we have the God-man, or to use the biblical term, we have God manifest in the flesh. He was not part man and part God, nor a mixture of both. Two distinct natures, but one person. As another person has said, he became what he was not, but continued to be what he always was. God, not God minus, but God added. He added a new nature to himself that he didn't have before. A human nature. Now, the method by which this was achieved was miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Luke records for us the words of the angel to Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And Mary replied, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. The eternal Son of God became the earthly Son of Mary. He became the last Adam. Whereas the first atom he had a beginning but no birth. The last atom had a birth but no beginning. Christ took everything that is involved in becoming truly human except one thing sin. From the moment of his conception in the womb of his mother, everything about his humanity fell with normal, natural parameters. He, he developed normally inside his mother's womb. His development took about nine months. And when he was born, his mother felt all the birth pains. And he was born just like any other baby. Although, eternally, he was God and remained God, but he became man. He had a human body. He had a human soul. He had a human mind. He had a human will. Christ had two wills.
1: He had a divine
0: will and a human will. He grew up just like any other normal boy. Luke writes for us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew from being a baby to childhood, from childhood to being a teenager, and from being a teenager to adulthood. He had to learn to walk and to talk. He was hungry. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was Like any other human baby, dependent on his mother, he had to be washed and fed by Mary. Remember how on a certain occasion that he asked a Samaritan woman, Will you give me to drink? He knew what it was to be hungry, tired and thirsty. (laughs)
1: He experienced a
0: whole range of human emotions. He experienced love and anger and sorrow and joy and compassion and many more. There is no record in the Bible that Jesus ever smiled or laughed. But I think it would be ridiculous to suggest that he never did either. John Calvin says, those who imagine that the Son of God was exempt from human passions do not truly and seriously acknowledge him to be a man. There is not simply the physical and emotional life of Jesus, but also the spiritual life. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. We sometimes we confine this to his confrontation with Satan in the desert. It is interesting what Luke writes regarding that. Luke says, and when the devil had ended all the temptations, he departed from him for a season. For a season. Jesus was tempted throughout his life, just as we are. He was dependent upon prayer. He was a praying man. And this is what Hugh Martin says about prayer. He says, prayer is a confession of weakness and of insufficiency, which illustrates the true nature of his humiliation. His prayer life was part of his humiliation, wherein he confessed uh, his weakness, his dependence upon his Father and the Holy Spirit. He attended public worship. His practice was always to go to the synagogue on the Lord's Day and to worship in the synagogue. He studied the Bible. He also had all the sinless limitations that belong uh, to us. There, was, there were things he did not know. For instance, he did not know about uh, his second coming. Mark records those words of Jesus. He says, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. That was our limitation To his knowledge, it wasn't sinful. It was a sinless limitation. And the same that we have, we do not know either the day of his second coming. Only God the Father knows. Remember how he asked the father of a demon-possessed boy, how long has he been like this? He didn't know. He had to be told how long this boy was demon-possessed. And what this brings before us is the marvel of his condescension. The marvel of his condescension. God is everywhere. There is no space, there is no place where God isn't. He's omnipresent. Sometimes people say that he left heaven. Well, we have to be, I think, very careful with that phrase. He is God and God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. I always prefer to say that the Son condescended to take upon himself human nature. He who was truly God became truly man and remained truly God. His human nature It could only be in one place at a time. It could only be in one place at one time. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have the God-man. One person with two distinct natures, so that the one person can be infinite and yet finite. The one person can be omniscient, knowing all, and yet ignorant. The one person can be omnipotent and yet powerless. Now that's a mystery. It's a mystery to me and it's a mystery to you. And yet it is a fact that is brought before us regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing or emptied himself or made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a servant or the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. All I want to say before we move on is that although Christ took unto him human nature it was a nature that was sinless. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That was never true of Christ. I can sing these words, and you can sing these words, and they are true of me and you. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Jesus could never utter such words. Paul wrote to the Romans and he says, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was like our sinful nature, but his nature was not sinful. He was like us, but he was sinless. He was like our sinful nature in the points that we have already noted this evening. Although he could not utter those words of David, he could say, Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts, as he was being fed by his mother like any other baby. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin. He took upon him the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of men and been found in fashion as a man or been found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. To those who looked at him as he walked the streets of Galilee and the shores of Galilee, he was in fashion as a man. All they saw was the appearance of a man, and that was all, an ordinary man. They saw nothing to distinguish him physically. There was no sign of his unique divine status. All they saw was that which was ordinary. He was a man in poverty. He was homeless. He was frail. Not exceedingly popular and rejected by the religious elite of those days. No one was able to see the deity that was sitting beneath the veil of his humanity because it required faith to see beyond the veil and the appearance of humanity. And the gospel gives us testimony that there were some who by faith saw beyond the veil and appearance of his humanity and saw him truly as the Son of God. Bringing us to the cross, remember the centurion. Truly, this was no other than the Son of God. Which leads us to believe that he said these words by faith. By faith. Now previously we saw the decision of the pre incarnate Christ. Now Paul brings before us the decision of the incarnate Christ. We have here have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. And then he gives us the decision of the of the pre incarnate uh, Christ. And uh, he says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And then he gives us the decisions of the incarnate Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on earth. Across our catechism again, as I do not at all apologise for using the shorter catechism so often today, because I believe it is a body of divinity that ought to be taught to our children, and that we ought to look at ourselves and refresh our own minds and understanding of the shorter catechism. Wherein he says that Christ's humiliation consists? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Now, we are not to confine his humiliation uh, to. The act, although the incarnation was an act of humiliation, but his humiliation continued in his status as man. So we read that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Really, his whole earthly life was a life of continuous humiliation. And his humbling was made manifest in his obedience. To whom was he obedient? Well, that can be answered quite broadly. Uh, He was obedient to to Joseph, and he was obedient to his mother. But verse 9 in this here, in this chapter, makes it plain to us that he was obedient to the one who exalted him. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now just in point of passing it is interesting in the words of our text that there from uh, verse 6 onwards it is the decision of Christ. He humbled himself but Christ did not exalt himself because it says here God has highly exalted him. And I think that is very significant. And I think there's a lot of lessons there for me uh, and you. That the one who humbles himself, God will exalt. But the one who exalts himself, God will humble. But anyway, returning to the text. To whom was he obedient? Well, he was obedient to the one who exalted him. That he was obedient to God. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. John chapter 8. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And as he made his way from the upper room with his 11 disciples, he said, As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. He could honestly say, I have kept my Father's commandment. And to what point was he obedient? Well, it says here that he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. He became obedient not simply to the point. Yes, well, he became obedient to the point of death, but there's a depth in that. That doesn't just mean that he came to obedient just to the point of uh, him dying. He was obedient in death itself. He was obedient in death itself. He became obedient to the point of that, that means that he was obedient in the death itself because he gave his spirit into the hands of the Father. To what point was he obedient? And to death, even the death on the cross. The human nature of Christ was mortal, he was able to die. But as we have already noted, it was unfallen. Human nature He was sinless. When we are conceived, as we have already noted in the words of David, we are conceived with a fallen nature. We come into this world as sinners, but that was not true of Christ. He had a true human nature, but not fallen nature. His human nature was weak because he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, not weak because he was, had a fallen nature. There is no indication that death was inevitable for Christ. All men die whether they want it or not because death is the wages of sin. Yet death was not inevitable for him in his humanity. And that it was unfallen human nature. Perhaps you could say that it uh, it was like Adam uh, before he sinned. Adam before he sinned had unfallen human nature. We read that Adam became disobedient unto death. But Christ, however, obeyed unto death. Adam became disobedient unto death. But here is one who became who obeyed into death. That was not possible for anyone else, to be obedient into death. And that's why the point I was trying to stress there when I was pointing out that he became obedient to the point of death, he was obedient even in, in death itself because he gave his life. Death could not take a hold of him until he gave permission to death to take a hold of him. To take a hold of him. That's just the point that I'm trying to stress the the depth of that phrase that we have that he became obedient to the point of death. And that was not possible for anyone else. It was not a common death but the death on the cross. For the church at Philippi, Paul's remarks would be extremely striking. Crucifixion was consisted as a barbaric form of execution of the utmost cruelty. It was a form of execution reserved for rebellious foreigners or violent criminals and robbers. And it was considered the Typical punishment of slaves. It was a death to which the law had uttered a curse. In the Old Testament we read, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he has to be put to death, and and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that the land may not be defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. It was a cursed death. It was a death under the curse of God. And on that cross, Jesus not only took the curse upon himself, the curse that was upon me and you because of our sin, he not only took that curse, but He exhausted the curse. The justice of God was satisfied. The justice of God was satisfied. Jesus did not die a gentle death, but he died as a slave or a common criminal in torment on a cross of shame. His death was substitutionary. Christ's death was a substitute. It was for others, for he need not die for himself. And death could not take hold of him because he was sinless. He gave himself to death. He was obedient to the point of death, and I've already tried at least in some small measure to explain the depth of that phrase. Christ taking our place, substituting for us himself in his death on the cross. He paid the penalty that was due to our sins by taking our sin upon himself. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took what belonged to us and he gave us what belonged to him. He took the rags of our sin, and he gave us the robe of his righteousness. Isaiah 53 brings to us the nature of Christ's death. of us all. The cross became the place of exchange. Our sins reckoned to him and his righteousness reckoned to all those who will believe and trust and follow Jesus. Christ, the eternal Son of God, the very God of very God, took to himself a true human nature surrendering his divine rights, veiled his personal glory and lived his life on earth as a man in total dependence on the Father and on the Holy Spirit. He died like a slave or a common criminal, in torment on a cross. There were moments of anguish that tore his soul when he was almost overwhelmed by the thought of it, in the garden of Gethsemane, three times he prayed, O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Surrendering himself to the will of his father. His human nature trembling in the garden of Gethsemane. And as Hugh Martin says, It was only the shadow of Calvary. It was only the shadow of the cross. And yet his humanity trembled at what was before him because it was true humanity. It was a true human nature. Oh, we remember when Philip took the Greeks to see him. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. but for this cause came I into the hour. Oh, there was a time when he sweat drops like blood, and when there were tears in his eyes. As the writer to the Hebrews says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, was thrown crying and tears into him that was able to save him from death. Jesus' supreme example of selflessness and obedience should lead and encourage believers to abandon all self-serving attitudes. And that is the point why Paul is bringing this before the church at Philippi. He says, Christ is your example. He is the motive to to take away all that self ambition and conceit and trying to have the preeminence. He is the one who teaches us humility, what it is to humble ourselves. Paul was teaching the church at Philippi that Jesus Christ is the perfect example of humbleness and servitude. Never as anyone, nor will anyone again. Surrender so much to become so low. Jesus took on manhood, even the form of a slave, so that he could bear our sin and receive his just punishment in his own body. He died the death of a criminal for the purpose of providing redemption and salvation and life to me and you, if we trust in him. Christ is a perfect example for all believers of being a humble servant to one another. Believers should strive to develop this uh, mindset that has been given to us here and set before us here. Realize that the ultimate reason that Jesus became a man was to bear our sin and die on the cross for sinners. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, much else was done by Jesus, of which we read in the Gospels, but at the heart of his coming and taking our human nature was this purpose, to bear our sin, to bear what our sins deserved, to bear the death that we deserved, to die our sin. Death, and to be victorious, to be victorious as we are reminded of every Lord's Day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth that is. The eternal Son of God condescending from the glories of heaven and took our human nature for one ultimate prevalent and central purpose, to bear the sin or what our sins deserve, those sins that we have committed, what they are deserved, and to die the death that we deserve, because he knew that this is the only way whereby sinners like me and you could be saved. There is no other way that we can be saved. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other way whereby sinners can be saved but in Jesus Christ. And what does my salvation mean to me tonight? What does Jesus mean for me tonight? The one who condescended, the one who was God and who condescended by taking upon himself my nature so that in my nature he could bear what my sins deserved in his own person and so that I could be saved and that I could have life. He came and went to the cross for others. He came and went to the cross so that sinners like me and you could be saved. Who, though he was in the form of God, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to? but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A shameful, cursed death of the cross. And then we have these words that we're not going to dwell on tonight. they are connected. Therefore God has highly exalted him, which tells us that he satisfied the justice of God that stood between God and the sinner. That in Jesus we can have peace with God. That in Jesus we can be reconciled to God that in Jesus, that relationship with God that was broken by sin can be restored to us. And there is no other way but in Jesus. No wonder the writer to the Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Think of the day of judgment when we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And for those who have been under the gospel, who's heard the gospel message, who's been exhorted to believe in Jesus, who has sat where you are sitting, who has sat within this building and yet who left this world faithless when they appear before Christ, there will be with no excuse. when Christ says, this is salvation. I condescended. I condescended, and I veiled the prerogatives that belonged to me, the rights that belonged to me. I did not grasp them, but I condescended. I was born as a babe into the world so that I could bear what sin deserved. Or sin deserved in my own body on the cross of Golgotha. I made a way of life for you, and you rejected that. You rejected that, and you despised that. Depart from me. Depart from me. Well, may that not be your testimony, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but may it be come and inherit the kingdom that I have prepared for you. Oh, what a great salvation this is. What a great salvation this is. Oh, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? May the Lord bless Thoughts, let us pray. Eternal and ever-blessed God, we have just touched on the preciousness of the salvation that thou hast worked out for sinners like we are in and through thy Son. And even touching the edge of that salvation in a reflection upon thy word tonight. Lease us with an awe in our hearts. Oh, how great is our salvation. We pray, O Lord, that Thou would bless Thy word to us, that indeed it may be a means of encouragement to us. And we pray, O Lord, that Thou would grant each and every one of us the grace to enable us to walk worthy of the gospel and to follow the example that Christ gave to us, that we will indeed be a servant to each other, that we will bear one another's burdens, that we will love one another, that we will build up one another, that we will forgive one another. We ask, O Lord, that thou will continue with us in coming days and forgive us our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. We shall conclude by singing to the Lord's praise from Psalm 16, at verse 8, on page 216. Psalm 16, verse 8. Be- before me still, the Lord, I said, Sith it is so that he doth ever stand at my right hand, I shall not move it be. Because of this my heart is glad, and joy shall be expressed, In by my glory and my flesh and confidence shall rise. Because my soul engraved to dwell shall not be left by thee, nor wilt thou give thine Holy One corruption to see. Thou wilt me show the path of life, of joys that is full store, before thy face at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. Psalm 16, verse 8 to 11, to the Lord's praise. Before me still the Lord, I say, Sith, it is so that he...
1: Before me still the Lord
0: Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.